Thanks for downloading today's episode of Alumni Voices. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen, and today we're going live into Hong Kong with Peter Redding. So Peter's an international human rights lawyer who's been working in the field of human rights for 20 years in Australia, United Kingdom, Europe, Commonwealth countries, and most recently in Hong Kong, China. Since November 2012, Peter has been working at the Equal Opportunities Commission, the EOC, in Hong Kong as legal counsel and most recently as senior legal counsel. He's been leading a number of large-scale advocacy projects such as the Discrimination Law Review to modernise the existing anti-discrimination legislation and advocacy relating to equality for the LGBTI people. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Josh. It's great to join you. Now, you've worked internationally as a human rights lawyer in a number of countries, but you started off studying law at UWA and worked as a lawyer initially in Australia. Can you tell us what inspired you to become a human rights lawyer and what led you to working overseas? Well, I would say um, sundowners in the law school courtyard, but that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably the wrong perspective to start on. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, I grew up in Perth, born in Perth, and... Um, yeah, I've I've thought about this, and um, I mean, I think my interest in human rights um, is very personal. Um, having a mixed race background, um, when I was at primary school in Perth, I did experience um, racial discrimination, which was quite um, tough, and I think that leaves a mark on you in in terms of your perspective on the world. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until um, you know I got to um, UWA and um, started studying law. And um, although I was fascinated by uh, contract law and torts law, um, <laughs> administrative law, uh, yeah, just joking. Um, <laughs> what what really inspired me was when I did a did a unit on uh, human rights law, and I and I remember that really well that um, I thought, well, this is something where I can be making a, a difference to people in need. And um, I think because of my personal experiences of discrimination, I, I um, you know, really thought it, it meant a lot. Um, yeah, and then I went overseas. Um, UWA actually had an exchange with um, France, one of the law schools there, and um, they were doing quite a lot of um, international law, human rights law as part of their units. And so... I did some more um, study on that. And then when I got back to um, Perth and, um, uh, you know, did, did articles and so on, um, I pretty much decided from pretty early on that I think my um, career was going to be in, in human rights. Um, and then I moved, uh, yeah, overseas. So I want to talk about the discrimination that you experienced uh, during your, your school years here in Perth. Is it something that, you can get over or is it something you don't want to ever get over because you kind of use that as fuel for your line of work today? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, when you go through something like that, um, obviously, you know, it's not just very hurtful, but it, it affects your whole mental well-being. Mm. Um, so, you know, discrimination and, and other forms of abuse, whether it's, sexual violence um, and, and so on uh, has profound impacts on, on people. And, and, you know, obviously human rights are all about ensuring that, that people can flourish as people. So um, anything that holds that back um, is, is obviously a detriment to um, society. And, um, 
you know, there are human rights abuses all around the world, um, whether it's Australia, whether it's China, whether it's uh, Europe and, and so on. Um, but I think we've, we've got to aspire for improving things um, wherever we are in the world. And that's why we obviously have international human rights obligations, which set the standards for all countries around the world in terms of what they should be um, aspiring to and uh, achieving. Now, the purpose of this podcast and the theme of it is around equality and equality means the state of being equal. It's one of the ideals of democratic society and so the fight to attain different kinds of equality like racial equality, gender equality or equality of the opportunity between rich and poor is often associated with progress toward that ideal of everyone being truly equal. Can you provide us with an overview of the current landscape of Hong Kong in relations to the issues of equality? Yeah, sure, Josh. So, um, yeah, I've been here for about seven and a half years, um, before that working in uh, Europe and then before that in Australia. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to compare the situation in Hong Kong with, with back home in Australia. Um, let me just sort of explain the, the legal framework um, first and then perhaps some of the main issues that are, are going on in Hong Kong in terms of equality issues. Um, so we have um, both anti-discrimination laws in Hong Kong, as well as a Bill of Rights, which is human rights legislation. So covers broader aspects of you know, right to uh, freedom of expression, right to life, right to uh, privacy and so on. Mm. Um, so both of those areas do cover the issue of the right to equality. Um, in terms of anti-discrimination laws, there are four types um, covering sex discrimination, um, which also includes um, pregnancy, sexual harassment, marital status. Um, and then we also have uh, disability discrimination laws, race discrimination laws, and family status. Um, family status is where you're caring for a family member and are discriminated against. Um, so that's similar to Australia in the sense that there are obviously um, different forms of federal and state mm -hmm. anti-discrimination laws. Um, in fact, Hong Kong's laws, you, you may not know this, well, you probably don't, um, it, were uh, based in part on Australia's anti-discrimination laws and um, the UK. And the reason for that is because, uh, at least for the moment, um, Hong Kong retains a, a common law legal system because of its history being a colony of the UK. Um, so it's always looked to similar common law jurisdictions in terms of drafting its laws. Um, and then for the human rights laws, I said there's a Bill of Rights. Um, that interestingly is where uh, Hong Kong's actually ahead of Australia. So, you know, for a long time in back home in Oz, there's been debates about whether there should be federal uh, human rights legislation. And uh, surprisingly, you know, um, Australia is one of the only um, um, developed countries in the world that doesn't have um, federal level uh, human rights uh, protections. Can you explain why we don't? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question. Um, well, there's been cause for it for for a long time. Some of the states do have protections, such as uh, Victoria. It has its charter of uh, uh, human rights. Um, 
some people have argued that there's already protections in the constitution, you know, in terms of Australia, but that's, that's um, only to a limited extent. And it's mm -hmm. certainly nothing like other jurisdictions like the UK, which have a, has a full, full human rights act. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's been various political reasons. There have been pushes for that legislation um, even quite recently. Um, but I think, I think the major problem has been political, to be honest, um, mm -hmm. you know, from, from my observations of, of what's been going on and that it's become very politicized about whether there should be such laws. Whereas in other countries, although you have that, um, at least you've had a consensus where major parties all agree that there should be uh, human rights legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so going back to Hong Kong, um, its Bill of Rights is based on the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is the UN Convention, which covers all the major civil and political rights, which is the ones I was talking about before, right to life, freedom of expression, and so on. Um, but one of the provisions, or at least uh, several of the provisions in there, also relate to the right to equality and non-discrimination. Um, so that's another added level of protection. Um, and the reason why that's important is that there are some areas in the anti-discrimination laws, which I mentioned, that are currently not um, sufficient. So you don't, for example, have coverage of sexual orientation and gender identity in the mm -hmm. anti-discrimination laws. So you have to use the um, Bill of Rights if you want to try to bring a claim of discrimination. Um, yeah, but well, I know we're going to talk about uh, LGBT a bit, a bit later. <laughs> um, yeah, so... That, that's the broad framework. Um, but in terms of some of the major issues, um, well, similarly to Australia, um, you know, we face issues of inequalities for women. Um, some of the most uh, particular burning issues are sexual harassment and um, discrimination in the workplace, such as uh, pregnancy discrimination. Um, there's a big problem of um, sexual harassment, not just in workplaces, but also at universities. Mm -hmm. So at the Equal Opportunities Commission, we've been doing a lot of work around that. Um, and is, where, where's and, the, where is the work? Is it, is, is it part of your work to educate people? Because I'm, I'm surprised that even though we're probably more educated, more informed than we've ever been, that these issues, these discrimination issues and equal rights issues are still taking place in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the reality is, is that um, people are more concerned about issues of uh, making money than mm. um, issues of equality unless it affects them economically. And um, one aspect which I think Hong Kong has been good at in the last... Um, uh, at least looking at some issues of equality is, is focusing on the business benefits of mm. equality. Um, because, you know, there's been a lot of research done looking at workplaces and, and those where um, they promote equality, diversity, they uh, promote equal opportunities in terms of advancement, whether it's because of your race or disabilities, they tend to perform better. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, being employers and productivity. So um, what we've been trying to look at um, um, is, is factoring in that business case as well, because 
you know, Hong Kong remains a um, major financial center, as you know, in the mm -hmm. world. Um, and so often, if you if you raise that with the government, it, it adds more weight because um, uh, they're, more, they're, they're in some ways more concerned of issues of the economic impact mm. um, of, of these, these aspects. Um, but yeah, just, just in terms of some, some other issues, um, for ethnic minorities in Hong Kong, um, there's about 10% of the population. And um, some of the major issues they face is um, problems of uh, speaking Chinese, speaking Cantonese, which mm -hmm. is the Hong Kong's language. Um, and a lot of them, because they're um, from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, they don't have the money to go to, uh, for example, the more expensive schools to, to have a good education. And the curriculum for teaching Chinese is, is not a separate um, curriculum. Um, therefore, a lot of them don't have sufficient proficiency in Chinese to do well in university or even get into university. And then that just perpetuates the problem of um, socioeconomic disadvantage. So, um, yeah. And then, and then just in terms of people with disabilities, a um, uh, major problem is lack of, lack of such people in the workforce. So, for example, I think the civil service in Hong Kong only has about 3% of its workforce that are disabled, whereas the population in Hong Kong with disabilities is at least um, nine or 10%. So, um, you know, there, there are major problems of pre prejudice against uh, people with disabilities as, as I'm sure, you know, I know there is in, in Australia as well, including people with um, intellectual disabilities and um, perceptions that they are not able to work or at least not able to do, you know, certain types of work. Well, let's let's stick with, stick with that because you know currently we're going through the COVID nineteen pandemic and we've seen numerous news articles of Asian people being verbally abused and even physically attacked around the world because of perceptions that the virus is Chinese in origin. What impact has the coronavirus had on the issues of equality, whether relating to the race, disabilities, or socioeconomic status? There. Yeah, Josh. I think um, you know the the virus is. Uh had a major impact on, on some of those issues. And I think what it's done is it's brought out existing prejudices or existing inequalities and exacerbated them. Um, so, you know, uh, I mean, I've been reading about some of the reports back home in Australia and you, you see it in the US, you see it in um, the UK, and there has been a significant rise in discrimination and violence against Asian people who obviously perceived to have been the source of the virus and, and therefore, you know, um, a source of um, anger and fear by some people. Mm. Um, and, you know, that highlights is obviously people's own prejudices, their own fears, but um, when it translates into actual um, um, violence and so on, it's uh, obviously of a, a major concern and, yeah, it's interesting how that's playing out in the media in, in Hong Kong. But on the other hand, which is what's quite interesting, is that you get the opposite uh, uh, as well. So there's been reports of in mainland China where people from African countries who were thought to have um, um, ha had, 
had high numbers of cases of the virus, for example, in Guangdong, which is near near the province next to uh, Hong mm-hmm. Kong. Um, you know, there were concerns that they were being vilified and that um, um, isolated because of fears about them having the virus. So mm. it can go it can go the other way, yeah. as in, you know, obviously any 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 racial group that is thought to have the virus or spreading the virus um, being discriminated in, in, in those ways. Um, you know, the other thing also is obviously anyone that has the virus in terms of legal terms, um, does have a disability um, and, and um, that means they themselves might be discriminated against mm-hmm. uh, even after um, obviously they've recovered and, and that could be a big problem going forward I, I can see where, um, where people who've had the virus are shunned in mm-hmm. society whether it's by family, friends, workmates, um, perhaps even people being dismissed because they have had the virus and fears that they may be able to transmit it still. Mm. Um, so there's, there's those problems as well. And then I think another huge problem, and, and this, is, this is something you probably would have seen in the media, is that the impact of the virus has been disproportionate on certain groups in society. And what I mean by that is um, racial groups. Mm. Um, so the, for example, in the UK and the US, there's already been clear statistics that people of black racial origin or, um, Asian racial origin, for example, are not only much more likely to get the virus, but also much more likely to die. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, I was just reading an article, uh, today that was saying in the US. Um, black people are three more times as likely to get the virus and twice as likely to die. And, um, you know, there, there are a number of factors there. Um, it could be partly because of them being more likely to do frontline jobs where they're more likely to be exposed to the virus. Mm-hmm. It can be that they are living in more crowded living conditions, particularly, obviously, if they are poor. Um, it could be that they already have... a uh, 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 poorer health conditions to start off with. And that is also linked to obviously socioeconomic disadvantage to start off with. Um, so, you know, there are a number of factors that, that may cause that, but mm. obviously it's a major problem when um, there's this huge disproportionate impact on certain groups in society. And, and I think um, countries need to be looking at, well, what can we do in the future uh, if these if these sorts of things w- happens again, which obviously it could, um, to lessen the likelihood of that impact. So let's talk about that. The race inequality is pervasive across many societies and within many organisations. There in Hong Kong, approximately ninety percent of the demographic there are Chinese. The largest ethnic minority groups are foreign domestic workers from the Philippines and Indonesia. So can you share about like? if they face discrimination in inequality and if so, what types? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, just, just to explain the, the system in Hong Kong, um, it's very different from, uh, Australia in this sense. Um, there's a policy which has been in place since probably the 
70s when when it sort of started where they've imported um, foreign domestic workers on working contracts to help with families in terms of um, domestic duties, whether it's caring for children, whether it's um, um, taking care of things in the house and so on. Um, and the numbers of foreign domestic workers has actually been gradually increasing over that period. Now there's um, at least uh, 350,000 or so, um, and they are mainly made up of um, Filipinos and uh, Indonesians. Mm. Um, and um, they do face significant problems of um, inequality and discrimination in Hong Kong, which, which we've worked a lot on. And I would say a lot of that is multiple forms of discrimination because most of them are women. They're obviously um, ethnic minorities and in the sense that they come from Philippines and uh, Indonesia. And many of them are from poor backgrounds. Um, that's why they're coming here to do domestic work. Um, and that combination often has significant impacts uh, in terms of um, issues they face. So just as an example, um, we did a study a few years ago about sexual harassment against domestic workers and 6% uh, reported that they'd been sexually harassed in the last year, which actually translates to about 21,000 if you've got about 350,000 domestic workers wow. being being sexually harassed, yeah. Um, and the problem is, is that um, there's also a, a requirement that they live in the uh, house where they're working. Um, and this can create problems because obviously if you're in a working environment where you're living in the same place as someone that is sexually harassing you, uh, it's, it's much more difficult to, um, one, uh, prevent that. To, to, to take action because you, you have fear about the repercussions. Many of them fear that they will get um, sacked and then have to return home. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's one example. But um, yeah, even worse is, um, well, not even worse, sorry. They're, they're all just as bad. But uh, say, for example, a domestic worker gets pregnant in Hong Kong. Um, they have the same rights in theory as um, all of the other workers in Hong Kong in terms of, you know, being able to um, take paternity leave and so on. But in practice, a lot of them get um, fired if they become pregnant by their employers. Um, there, there's been a cases and we've dealt with one of these, which was, uh, which was uh, successful. Um, where employees are requiring the pregnant worker to take a pregnancy test um, to test whether they're um, pregnant. So actually being made to do that, mm -hmm. um, which is also obviously a breach of their right to privacy because mm -hmm. you, you don't have to tell your employer until a certain point that you are pregnant. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, obviously if you're, if you're dismissed, then um, another problem in Hong Kong is that there's a, there's a law that says, um, if they don't find a job within two weeks after being terminated, they have to return back home to their country. So your visa doesn't run for say for a whole year or two years. Um, you must leave 
if your um, employment is terminated, um, which, you know, just, just creates a, all sorts of other related problems as well. So is this part of how you're part of your work on modernizing the anti-discrimination laws? Because you've been successful as a number of amendments were passed last month to implement the EAC recommendations. Uh, these will provide protections from breastfeeding discrimination for women, better protections from sexual, racial and disability harassment in the workplaces. So can you explain the effect of those amendments and what are the key recommendations that are yet to be implemented? Yeah, so um, one of the main reasons why I was recruited um, a number of years ago was to actually work on reforming the existing anti-discrimination laws. And that's something I also worked, at, worked on um, in the UK with the um, Bear Equality Act. Um, and what we've done over the last few years is to review all those four laws that I talked about um, and make recommendations for reform, which we did in 2016. Uh, there's about 73 recommendations. Um, the government is, uh, well, took forward eight, not not as many as we, we obviously would uh, wish, but um, certainly better than none. And um, they've just, uh, well, that legislation just passed last month. So mm -hmm. that's some uh, good news for Hong Kong, which is definitely um, needed in these times. Um, and... Um, yeah, just to give you an overview of some of the key changes. Um, one is, as you said, to provide protection from discrimination for breastfeeding women, uh, because that wasn't in the law before. It only covered sex, which is obviously broader. Um, and if you look again at Australia, um, all the states and uh, federal law also covers breastfeeding discrimination. Um, and then another key area is um, coverage of sexual, racial and disability harassment in common workplaces. Um, so this, this is something that applies where you don't have an employment relationship, um, but you're, for example, sexually harassed. Um, so just to give you an example, um, if, you're a, if you're doing an internship, or volunteering at an organisation, um, usually that's not considered an employment relationship because you, you don't have a, a contract to provide services um, and therefore you wouldn't be protected from harassment. And um, this amendment actually um, rectifies that because um, it means you would be covered. Uh, you just have to work in the same place it's actually similar. We, we, we actually looked at Australian law on this, uh, similar to the laws in Victoria and New South Wales, which do cover common workplace sexual harassment. Um, but this actually goes broader than that because it also would cover racial harassment and disability harassment in workplaces. Um, but, um, I mean, just as an example, um, you know, a big problem at the moment or issue at the moment is... Um, co-working spaces um, and uh, this this amendment will cover that issue so that if you go to work in one of these co-working spaces um, and you're harassed by someone from some other organization then you would still be protected from harassment um, so, so that's you know a couple of the um, key changes um, that, that have been brought in. 
Now, let's talk about the Black Lives Matter movement because it's had a major impact on societies, not just in the United States, but around the world. Having worked on issues of race equality in a number of regions, why do you think there is such a strong reaction and what should governments be doing to address the issues? Yeah, the um, issue of Black Lives Matter is uh, you know, obviously a pivotal moment um, in the issues of uh, race equality. Um, no, I think uh, what this all uh, goes back to is issues of institutionalised racism, um, which in, in this case, it obviously relates to the police. Um, and around the world, these issues of um, police racism have, have come up in many contexts. Um, I used to work uh, at the Commission for Racial Equality in the UK and one of the investigations we did was into um, institutionalised racism within the police force. Um, now that can cover both where it relates to activities um, in terms of how they interact with the public mm -hmm. and it also covers internal problems of racism within the police force. And that investigation was looking at internal um, racism uh, and made major recommendations of reform um, in the UK. Um, but also um, there was the, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry in the UK, which looked at um, the murder of Stephen Lawrence, who was a black um, lad in London, who was um, murdered by some uh, whites who were racist. And then the police failed to properly investigate that. And the, inquiry was into the institutionalized racism there so so that's you know obviously another country but it raises the similar sort of issues of the conduct of um the police um and you know in, in, in terms of um the way forward in in these sorts of situations um just as most uh, countries um there needs to be a independent investigation um, at, at sort of national or at least regional level mm. in these sorts of issues. And, and, you know, just as in Australia, there is the, the power for governments to create royal commissions. Those sorts of things need to go on in the US or, or wherever these things are happening. Mm. Um, you know, un unfortunately, um, from what I've read, at least so far in the US, that, that doesn't seem to be uh, at least uh, um, what is happening on a, on a wider scale. Mm. And perhaps that's a problem with who's in the White House um, and what their attitudes might be towards these issues. Um, but unless I think um, there is comprehensive investigations into these issues, what is the, the source of the problems, um, what steps can be taken to change the systems, the policies, the practices, then unfortunately these sorts of things will, will continue. I mean, the, the issue of George Floyd is, is unfortunately just one of many um, black people that have been murdered by the police over the last 10 years, um, you know, which, which, which obviously shows that the issues haven't been addressed. How important um, is social media for not only in the Black Lives Matter causes, but 
any uh, equality calls that you, you've been involved in? Oh, yeah, I think, I think it's hugely important, Josh. Um, you know, these days, movements are being driven by social media. Mm. Uh, um, and, and obviously that, that happened in relation to the Black Lives Matter but it's also happened in relation to the Me Too movement and sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly happening in relation to Hong Kong and the issues of uh, uh, um, national security laws and so on. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's hugely powerful. It can be in a positive sense. Um, but I think there also are dangers of um, social media and uh, obviously, for those that are opposed to certain certain uh, uh, changes in society, then they mobilise social mm -hmm. media as well. Um, and obviously, there's a whole there's a whole issue about the role of social media and what they consider should be taken down, what they consider to be fake news, um, and 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 so on. So. Mm -hmm. Um, we've actually we've actually um, had our own interactions with um, Facebook in uh, in Hong Kong, and this has been in the media um, while working at the EOC um, in terms of um, racial vilification, um, where people were posting uh, online about South Asians um, threatening or, or suggesting that they should be killed, and and so on, and then. Um, the issue that we had with them is that um, we asked Facebook to provide us with the um, uh, contact information of the people making the posts um, uh, because obviously we needed to investigate that uh, they refused to do so, saying you'd have to apply to a court in uh, the US because that's where the data of people was held. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, in that sense, I think you know social media can be a problem because they may not be fulfilling their duties. So this is where obviously we as a statutory equality body are asking for the data to try and investigate possible vilification. And if that social media refuses mm -hmm. um, unjustifiably, because obviously we're, we're the statutory body, we're not just um, someone on the street asking for the data of someone, then um, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I would say social media can be very positive, but it also, uh, I think, given its great powers these days, can be a, a, a problem on these issues. So one of the most significant developments in Asia on issues of equality has been growing support for legal developments on the rights of the LGBTQI people. Uh, you've been leading some of that work in Hong Kong. So can you tell us about the key issues, developments, as well as what you see as a way forward to achieving more? Yeah, sure, Josh. I mean, um, yeah, the work on uh, LGBTIQ um, rights has probably been one of the biggest developments on equality in Asia. And it's really quite, um, that's been quite inspiring to be involved in that um, over the last seven years. I've seen a huge change in society, not just in Hong Kong, but you can see it across um, many parts of Asia. Mm -hmm. um, so seven years ago, you know, you, you would never have thought that Taiwan would have same-sex marriage. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I don't know whether you read that Thailand's um, going to introduce 
civil civil partnerships, civil unions, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know some people have argued in the past that LGBT rights are not compatible with Asian values, um, that they're somehow a Western construct, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, you know in Asian culture the idea of same-sex marriage is is completely foreign. Well, you know, obviously recent developments have shown that that's not the case um, and um, reinforced that the idea of uh, rights for LGBTI people are obviously universal, universal rights. And, um, yeah, in Hong Kong, um, well, it's not, it's not very good in terms of the situation. Um, there's currently no, as I said um, at the beginning, um, anti-discrimination laws covering sexual orientation or gender mm-hmm. identity for transgender people. Um, there's no right to same-sex marriage or even civil unions, civil partnerships. Um, and there's no gender recognition laws for transgender people. Um, in particular, actually, although you can change your gender legally now in Hong Kong by an administrative process, you must undergo full sex reassignment surgery, which results in sterilization of the person, oh, wow. which in it, yeah, which which in itself is um, a breach of their human rights and has been recommended by the UN as being completely uh, inappropriate. Um, so, um, but we at the EOC have done some great work around this, and and that's something we're we're very proud of. Um, we've done huge research project on introducing anti discrimination laws. Uh, we've also done a huge research project on relationship rights and how all, well, so many laws in Hong Kong discriminate mm-hmm. against same-sex couples in terms of denying rights. And we've also made recommendations to the government that they introduce gender recognition laws for transgender people, um, which also upheld their other rights um, and obviously don't require surgery. So when you um, make these recommendations to the government, how long does it take for you to develop those recommendations and then how long does it take for those recommendations to be put in place? Yeah, well, unfortunately too long. Um, um, in, in relation to, uh, as I said, the anti-discrimination laws and um, gender recognition laws, you know, we made recommendations in 2016 and the government hasn't acted on them to date um, for either. And that's what I would say is a big difference between um, Hong Kong and Australia or UK. Um, uh, I mean, I would say that the process of government has been more effective back home in Australia or UK overall in terms of trying to get through um, legislation on these sorts of issues. Um, I mean, there are reasons for this and, and it's common reasons as in other countries. There's a strong opposition to LGBT rights by religious groups in Hong Kong. And in particular, I would say more so um, Christian groups. Uh, and I know, you know, there are similar problems in, the, uh, in Australia uh, and the US and, and other parts of the world. Um, but that, that means that there hasn't been progress through the government. Uh, fortunately, uh, there have been a number of court decisions which have been successful. Um, the, the courts have worked uh, uh, 
you know, been an effective um, means of redress on LGBT rights, particularly on relationship rights. So there's been a couple of cases. Uh, one was relating to dependent visas for people coming from overseas. So say, for example, you're in a same-sex marriage from Australia, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, one of you gets a work visa to come and work in Hong Kong. Now, previously, the government wouldn't allow your dependent, your your partner, to come on a, a dependent visa because they didn't recognise that relationship. Wow. Uh, yeah, and so this case called QT challenged that, and uh, it was um, successful. Um, and uh, there was another similar case that looked at um, rights to um, benefits in employment mm. uh, and taxation benefits. Um, so those were successful. Um, but I would say that the government, you know, what it should then have done, consistent with uh, the, the research that um, we've done previously, is, is obviously consider how to comprehensively reform the system, um, looking at all the areas of law which deny rights, but also considering a system mm-hmm. legal recognition i mean it doesn't need to be same-sex marriage necessarily i mean obviously different countries have taken different approaches but the point is is that you should have equal rights um and yeah so there's still a long way to go um on those issues and um i'd say that you know there, there needs to be a change in the approach of the government um because Unfortunately, you know, we can make recommendations to the EOC, but, you know, the, the, we can't compel the government to obviously um, act on them. So how different is it between working in Hong Kong and the UK? Because you worked in the UK for 11 years in a number of human rights roles. Uh, that included Amnesty International UK, the Commission for Racial Equality, and as Director of Legal Policy at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Can you share what the different, you know, what your biggest takeaways from working in the UK and human rights issues? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I was there eleven years working in a number of roles. Um, it's quite interesting the evolution, I'd say, in the UK. Um, I would say things were uh, generally going in the right direction uh, up until two thousand and ten, and then. Since then, things have been going backwards. Um, that's my overall assessment, having yeah. having worked there for that period and also being, uh, you know, up to date with what's been happening since. Um, so there were a lot of positive developments pre-2010. So there was um, the work that, that we did on um, reforming and improving the anti-discrimination laws. There was also the Human Rights Act that was introduced um, um, about 10 years before, um, which covers all the human rights I talked about in terms of right to life, right to privacy and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, obviously at that point, uh, the UK was part of the EU. Um, and I'll, and I'll come on to that in a minute. <laughs> it's no longer, but post, post 2010, it's no coincidence. That's also when the um, Conservative Party came into power. Um, and uh, I experienced firsthand what happened in terms of their approach to human rights. And one of the first things that they did was cut the funding for the Ecology and Human Rights Commission where, where I worked, which is the National Human Rights Institution, equivalent to uh, the Australian Human Rights Commission. 
Uh, but they didn't cut it by, you know, 10%, 20%. Uh, they cut it by 70%. Um, and that, you know, was a, that was the first indication of their approach to issues of human rights. And they've done a number of other things to erode human rights. So the Human Rights Act, as I said, was introduced in 2000. But one of their main areas of work has been on how to change the Human Rights Act, but not make it more positive, not make it stronger in terms of protections, but to actually erode them. Uh, and, you know, when you see the uh, UK in terms of their, their, their diplomacy around the world, they may be considered to be progressive on human rights, but domestically mm. they're, they're actually going backwards. And as I said, the fact that they've left the European Union is also a, a, a negative for human rights because by being part of the EU, you also have to be a party to the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which is the EU's equivalent human rights protections, which covers all of the EU members. And by, by withdrawing from that, it's also reduced some of the protections um, um, that, that were existing um and then yeah even on a on a on a national level they've made things more difficult so for example they introduced much higher fees to be able to bring cases of discrimination in the tribunals the courts mm -hmm. um yeah which meant that for certain groups you know whether it's ethnic minorities or other disadvantaged groups it was much more difficult to bring a claim because they, they couldn't necessarily afford it. Mm. Uh, fortunately, on, on that particular instance, the, the, there was a case that was brought about that, that it was discriminatory and it went to the Supreme Court and that case was successful and the government actually had to reverse all of its um, increases in fees. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's actually quite unfortunate. Um, you know, most people, I, I'm still in contact with friends there working on human rights issues, said say things have got a lot worse um, and um, it certainly wouldn't be helped by also um, the virus because as I said the impact in terms of socio-economic impact is, is, is hugely significant on um, certain groups such as um, ethnic minorities. Now, I'm conscious of time, but I want, I want to go full circle and go back to your time there at UWA because at the at the start you talked about you know your sundowners in the courtyard. <laughs> can, can you just give us a little bit of insight and walk us through what your time at UWA was like and you know some of your highlights? Um, yeah, well, I I couldn't quite emulate Bob Hawke in terms of um, beer drinking skills. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Um, yeah, I had a great time at UWA. I mean, I would say, um, well, it's a fantastic place to study in terms of the, the physical environment. It's such a beautiful place. Uh, whenever I bring people there from, you know, when they, from overseas, they, they just fall in love with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's also the quality of education is, is really good. Um, and I actually remember... <laughs> Uh, you know, having gone on exchange to um, France for, for one of the years that I just wanted to stay at uni for the rest of my life, you know. <laughs> um, um, now most people were like um, keen to get out of uni, whereas I was happy to be, to stay there. So I actually, because I did a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of 
outdoors and when I started it used to be a six year degree for the two. Um, so long I ended up expanding all to eight years uh, at UWA and um, yeah, no, no, it was all good. Um, definitely the, the sundowners were a highlight at, uh, at uh, the law school. And obviously the um, tug of war and food fights with um, the engineers, <laughs> which, which, which we always won. <laughs> I think they were just, they were, they were just jealous of us because, um, because we had a lot more, a lot more lovely ladies in our faculty than, uh, than they did in engineering. Okay. Uh, well, we're going to leave it there, Peter. Thank you so much for being able to share, give the insight into your role there, the AOC there in, in Hong Kong. And for those that aren't aware that Peter's one of our alumni ambassadors there in Hong Kong. So if you ever want to reach out to him, ask him about his role, what life is like in Hong Kong. If you're ever thinking of, of moving there, um, definitely hit, hit him up. But Peter, really appreciate your time and look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks very much for the time and uh, yeah, great speaking to you, Josh.